had to move the flowers because they're in my roaming zone. And uh, when I've got a passage I'm excited about, I need to move a little more. And I, I love the, the chapter we're going to be looking at today. It's John chapter 11 and verses on either side of it. Um, so if you're someone that likes to read along, this is a great day for that. We're going to work through this chapter. Uh, when I was kind of thinking about this and, and working on it this week, I thought, this is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. And then I thought, I mean, and I started coming up with some of my other favorite ones just to kind of see where it ranked, which was an interesting exercise. And I decided it's at least top 10. And then I started kind of going through it, and, and I thought, you know, I've probably got about 25 to 40 top 10 chapters of the Bible <laughs> that I just love to talk about. And so today we're in our top 10. We probably will be next week too. Uh, but man, the Bible is rich. The Bible is rich. And the passage we're looking at today in John chapter, starting in chapter 10, uh, is going to tell the story of, of the time when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Uh, and one of the things that's fun about this chapter is in each of the four Gospels, there comes a point, there's an inflection point, where Jesus goes from doing his ministry uh, in Judea to, to suddenly everything in the text shifts and starts heading towards the cross. Uh, Jesus starts telling his apostles and his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem to be betrayed. Uh, Jesus uh, stops roaming around the countryside and he's headed towards Jerusalem. Jesus begins uh, having more direct confrontations with his opponents, but they go from trying to discredit him to trying to kill him. Right. And so in every one of the Gospels, there's this inflection point where it just it pivots and one of the things that's really interesting about the Gospel of John is that it happens in this chapter around the events that happen at Bethany in the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Is that this is the point that his opponents move from, we don't like this guy, to he's got to die, uh, is the change that happens in this story. And this story is, is incredible because it's one of the ones that we learn when we're kids and we don't go back and revisit as much as we should as adults. But this story is filled in between the lines of people wrestling with faith and with doubt. Uh, it's, it's filled with people who one moment believe incredibly and the next moment are, are saying, I, I don't think that's how it works. And, and they're just wrestling with it. And I think that's incredibly significant for us today because we live in a time when people who believe in Jesus sometimes still have lingering doubts rolling around in the back of their heads. But we also live in a time where people who doubt Jesus sometimes have lingering echoes of faith rolling around in their head. To where in many ways it's easier today to have conversations about God and church and Christianity than, than it was in the past because even the doubters doubt their doubt and the faithers doubt their faith. And, and it invites us into this place where I think the people and, and witnesses of what Jesus is doing here in John chapter 10 really have a lot to show us today and, and to make us feel safer in the discomfort of our own doubts as we walk with Jesus. Uh, so we're going to start in, in chapter 24. Uh, in this, uh, John 10, verse 24, uh, the Jews who were gathered around him said, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. They want to know, are you the one we've been praying for and waiting for? Lord Messiah is not translated. It means king. It's the Hebrew word for king. If you are the king, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered, 
I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Okay, we know, we know today, 2,000 years later, that if you believe and follow Jesus, you receive the gift of eternal life. They don't have this information, and Jesus just throws it out there. We, we're so accustomed to this passage, we don't realize how, how incredible this is, how overwhelmingly uh, new this is to the conversation when he says this. Imagine if, if someone uh, was running for office in this country uh, next year. We're going to have a lot of elections next year. And one of the candidates says, here's the thing. If you vote for me, you'll never die. Wouldn't we all go, wait, play that back again? Did he, did he just say that if we vote for him, we will live for eternity? That, that we'll have like some fountain of youth? Did, is that part of his campaign promise? We would be shocked. He would be made fun of and, and called a lunatic and ridiculed for making a claim like that. But here's Jesus. And they say, are you the king we've been waiting for? And he says, I've already told you that I am. And, and the works that I've done and the things that I've done prove that I am the king that you've been waiting for. And the people that are my followers, they hear me. They see what I'm doing. They know what I'm doing. But you're unwilling to see God in me, and so you just don't see it. And we live in a world where there are some people who can see the things Jesus is up to in the world, who can and see God working in their lives, and they just won't admit it. They choose doubt against overwhelming evidence, even in their own lives. And so when he says that my followers will live forever, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these are you going to stone me? We're not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God, which is blasphemy, unless you are. So Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? If he called them gods, plural, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be set aside, what about this one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I've said I'm God's son? Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. And verse 39 is, is just really vivid for me. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Stop for a minute and imagine what this scene is really like. 
Jesus is here and he's preaching and he says, my followers will get eternal life and my followers believe me and trust me because of what they've seen me do. And the crowd grabs stones and they're running at Jesus and they want to kill him. This is a mob. This is an angry mob ready to murder Jesus. They think justly, he knows unjustly. And he says, wait a minute, what good thing did I do that you're going to kill me for? And they say, we're accusing you of claiming to be God, of claiming blasphemy. And he tells them why that's not true. And they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. There's a scrum going on in this story where he's wrestling to get out of this angry mob's hands and to get away. And the apostles are trying to get away with him. This is intense stuff. Now, this is not a G-rated movie we're reading here. So Jesus went back across the Jordan to a place where John had been baptizing in the early days. And there he stayed. And many people came to him and they said, though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. And so he's escaped to the other side of the Jordan River and he's found a friendlier crowd. And the mob that has just tried to kill him twice is over on the other side of the river. Uh, and there, Jesus is sitting uh, calmly and peacefully with the apostles. A man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And when he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus already knows the end of this story. Exactly. He knows the end. And he hears that Lazarus is sick, and he knows that Lazarus is going to die, and he knows that he is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He already knows all of it. And he keeps saying in this story, if you don't believe in me, believe in the works that I do. And so if he's going to make the claim that my followers have eternal life, my followers will live forever, he's going to back it up with his works. He's got to prove that that's true by raising someone from the dead. Now, what Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you and you're going back? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. The apostles often misunderstand Jesus, and sometimes his statements are a little bit cryptic. Twelve hours of day and night, walking in light and dark. Um, but he says, Lazarus has fallen asleep, and I'm going to go wake him up. And they reply, because they don't want to go back over there, right? They just almost died in a violent mob over there. And Jesus is like, hey, let's go back over there. And their point is, what if we don't? What if we stay here? There's no angry mobs here. 
It, the food is fine. Remember, this is, good things are happening here. And he says, listen, we've got to go back. Lazarus has fallen asleep. And they say, he'll wake up. He'll wake up. Someone will wake him up. There's plenty of people there that can go shake him and wake him up. And then, uh, they, so they reply, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better from sleeping. And Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So he has to tell them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Jesus has chosen to wait two days to let Lazarus die so that he can take his disciples and apostles and Mary and Martha and everyone that's in this area and they can see him bring Lazarus back from the dead and see the glory of God. We've been talking some for the last couple of weeks about uh, Philip's request, Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus says, the Father and I are one, and if you've seen my works, you've seen the Father. And there's that echo of Moses' request from the Old Testament of, God, let me see your glory. Jesus right here says, I'm so glad that Lazarus has died, because now I get to go show you the glory of God. It's what Moses wanted to see all those years ago, and now they're going to get to see it in what he's going to do in Lazarus' life. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go so we can die with him. Isn't that great? So Thomas is famous for really one thing, right? He's the doubting Thomas. And he gets all the grief because he says when the other apostles all see Jesus in the upper room and they tell Thomas, hey, we saw Jesus up here in the upper room. We touched him. We saw him eat. Uh, He says, I won't believe that until I touch him with my own hands and see him with my own eyes. That does eventually happen. But, But Thomas here should, I think, get some credit for some faith. Thomas doesn't say, if you're going back over there with that mob, I'm staying over here. Thomas says, well, if he's going to go die in the hands of that mob, I'll go with him. I'm in this till the end. And so while there's this this wrestling all the time in Thomas's life, as well as so many of these others, they're wrestling with this question of what faith requires and what doubt leads us to and the burdens of fear and worry about what's going to happen if we follow our faith to its full conclusion. They're wrestling with that. So on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. So in the time that it took for the messenger to get to where Jesus was and to find him and get him the news and the two days that he waited and the time it takes him to travel back, it's now been four days since Lazarus has died. Uh, And and in Jewish thought, um, that's a long time. Okay, So if you're not familiar with the ancient world, four days, they understand that that dead person is all dead. There's no chance that Lazarus is sleeping. There's no chance that he's in a coma. There's no chance that Lazarus has just sustained himself in some state of unconsciousness. It's four days, he's all dead, and Jesus shows up. Uh, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come from, to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. 
And so there's crowds now that have gathered, crowds that have gathered from Jerusalem, and they've come to Bethany, and, and Jerusalem is two miles away. And, and what you can assume from that is that the word has gotten out all over the place that Lazarus is dead. And people have been coming from miles around a journey to where the sisters are to grieve with them and to mourn with them and to remember his life with them. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's an incredible statement of faith, but it doesn't even come close to what she says next. Next, she says, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. What does she mean there? Does she mean, hey, I believe you could have saved my brother, but, but now even if you ask for, for a blessing on us, we'll receive a blessing? No, what she's suggesting is that, Jesus, I have enough faith in you that I legitimately believe right now that if you ask God to raise my brother from the dead, he'll get out of that cave. She's got that much faith. And Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And kind of like Derek said earlier, when we have this idea of raising from the dead, even when you have enough faith to think it's possible, when someone says he'll rise again as an answer to that, we end up responding with skepticism and doubt. And so she says, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. I know that. And there's this resignation in her voice of like, that's comforting, but it doesn't help today. It still hurts today. Today, I just want him back here. And so Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? So now we're going back to what he said a few days earlier, where he says, if you're my follower, you will receive eternal life. And it changes everything when you believe that you can have eternal life. And so he's coming back to that and saying, I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, you have eternal life and you will never die. Do you believe this? This is an incredibly difficult question. And she replies, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who has come to the world. And after she'd said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. And when Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. And so when they see her get up and, and go towards the tomb, they all kind of say, all right, the funeral's moving. It's going over there now. Let's all get up and go with her. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who would come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit. And he was troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. We've got to stop there for a minute. You know that we have to, but, but in this moment, Jesus is part of the cause, and everyone has given him credit and, and responsibility in some ways in the story so far, uh, for hey, if you had just been here, you could have done something. 
And Jesus knows if he was there earlier, he would have done something. It's why he says to the apostles, I'm glad I waited, because if I hadn't waited, I would have got there and fixed it, and, and I would have solved it. Jesus knows that if he had been there, he would have saved this family that he loves dearly from the, the grief and the pain and the suffering they've endured. And as he sees them weeping, uh, Jesus is not someone who just says, shh, stop, be quiet, you're being loud, I'm trying to raise him from the dead, just give me a minute and this will all go away. He doesn't do that. And that's remarkable. And, and, and we need to take note of that. Because one of the things that so often happens in our world of doubt and fear and anxiety is, is that we sometimes say, because I'm suffering, it proves that Jesus doesn't care about me or love me or that God's not in charge. What Jesus demonstrates in this moment of, of incredible empathy, of incredible connecting with the people who are hurting, is that he weeps with them. And you need to know that when you go through tough days, when you go through hard nights, that, that you want to ask, Jesus, why am I going through this? What you need to know is that you have a Messiah who cries with you. And that there's times that, that sometimes we need to go through the suffering so that we can come out the other side of it and see the glory of God in our lives. But it doesn't mean that while we're waiting to see the glory, it doesn't mean that he's not hurting with us. It doesn't mean that he doesn't ache alongside us. And so Jesus weeps even though he knows that this story has a happy ending. And he weeps with them and alongside them. And together they're all out there crying. And then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said... Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Criticism, even again. Uh, at this point in the story, the crowd is there, and they believe that he could have healed him, but they question his plan. You ever find yourself in that boat? You ever find yourself in that situation where you have enough faith that God could make your life different, but you don't like that he's guiding your life in a different situation, a different direction than you want it to go? I think we find ourselves in that place often. God, I believe you could make things different, and I don't know why you aren't. So the crowd voices our objections. The crowd is saying what we so often think in our prayers God, I know you can make my life better. Why don't you? Why don't you? And over and over again in the story, Jesus says that he cares about people, but he needs sometimes for us to sit in the difficulty for a while so that the glory of God can be revealed on the other side of it. So Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha. What was Martha's last line? Martha's last line is, I believe you can raise the dead. I believe you give eternal life to your followers. I believe that if you had been here, you could have healed this man. I believe that even now, God will give you whatever you ask for. He says, okay, roll away the stone. And Martha says, listen, it's been four days. By this time, there's a bad odor. Doubt. In the midst of all of her faith, there still is that echo of doubt. And it's that way for us 
all the time as people who believe in Jesus Christ. We say, God, if you want me to go, just say go. And we say, okay, I'll go. Are you sure? You really want me to go? Go. Okay, then I'll go. Soon, maybe. I'm not sure you want me to do this. We, we let doubt hold us back even in the midst of having great faith. Then Jesus said, did I tell you, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe it was you that sent me. Remember the first question that we started with? beginning of the sermon. Tell us plainly if you're the Messiah. He says, believe me by my works. They roll the stone away and he says, Father, show them that you've sent me. And when he said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. His hands and his feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And he said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. And so here's this crowd. Here's this crowd that has been told that Jesus can give people eternal life. And now the dead man's walking out of the tomb. And it doesn't say that Lazarus was alive because whoever's writing this still has the echo of the fact that the dead man's walking. And you get the idea that there's a minute or two where they're going, is he just a dead man walking or is he alive again? He's alive again. He's alive again. So he starts taking off the garments and he puts on new clothes. And, and I think so often we think to ourselves, if I could have just been in those days and seen the things that people saw, I would believe, it would be so easy to believe, if I could just see Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. Of course I would believe. But that's not what's going to happen here in a minute. It's not belief that results from this. It is for some, but not for others. But something that I had never thought of before came up uh, in our Alpha class last year. We were talking about this in, in the groups, and I always just think about how excited and happy Mary and Martha would have been in this moment, and the crowd would have suddenly been rejoicing and, and screaming and shock and surprise, and, and it would just be jubilation. Uh, and someone at the table went, man, if you were Lazarus, wouldn't you be ticked? Wouldn't that be a bummer? Uh, four days in paradise, and all of a sudden you walk out and go, I'm here again? Bethany? That's what? Who's, who's up to this? And Mary and Martha are like, we asked Jesus to do it. And, the, and do you think he was like, why? I had it great over there. And now I'm back here. Um, and not only is he back here, uh, but he's, he's going to go up to Jesus. And Jesus, what happened? Well, you were dead. And then I told you to wake up. And you did. Okay. I guess that's happened now. Now remember, the, the rumors and stories about Lazarus' death have spread even to Jerusalem and miles around, and everyone has come to grieve and mourn him. Do you know what that means? He gets to say uh, every time someone sees him for the next two, three, four, five, six weeks, Lazarus? Yeah. What are you doing here? I'm getting bread. Well, I mean, I thought you were dead. Everyone said you were dead. I was. 
What, what changed? Jesus told me to wake up, so I did. Jesus of Nazareth told you to wake up? Yes. And so you did? Yes. Were you all dead? Yeah, four days, all dead. Totally dead. It was great. He made me come back. Now I'm telling you about it. I've told this story a lot of times lately. Don't you know that for the rest of his life, however long he lived after that, and he did die again. Jesus doesn't. We won't, but he did. Uh, that when he was at a party, uh, someone would say, hey, Lazarus, tell us about the afterlife again. Just a little bit. Um, this is the thing he's going to talk about for the rest of his life. And he does. He starts telling everybody about it. But what's crazy is that there's another parable where Jesus is talking about a rich man and Lazarus. And the point of that parable is about how we treat people in this life and, and, and wanting to do differently and better. But at the end of that parable, the rich man asks Lazarus in, uh, in the afterlife, Lazarus, go back and tell my brothers about what's going on over here. Tell them about the resurrection. Tell them about the afterlife. And Jesus in that parable, that teaching says, even if someone rose from the dead, they would not believe. Even if someone named Lazarus rose from the dead and went and told them, I was dead and now I'm alive, but I can tell you there is an afterlife and Jesus can give it to anyone he wants to that's his disciple or his follower, that there's going to be some who say, I don't think so, I'm not interested. I'm not going to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus. So when we get to this part of the story, Jesus now uh, is, is preaching about who he is, but now someone who he raised from the dead is preaching about who he is. And so therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him because, of course you should. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. They went and tattled. And then the chief priest and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, I guess that would be healing people and blessing people and feeding people and raising the dead so that they're back to their grieving sisters. If we let him keep going on like this, then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. And one of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He prophesies that. And it's exactly true, but in the opposite way that he thinks it is. His point is we need to murder this man Jesus before we lose our power. We need to murder this man Jesus before the people follow him and rise up against Rome and Rome comes and destroys us. We need to murder this guy before all of the good stuff that we've got accumulated gets taken away from us. But what really was happening was that God gave him a prophecy that one man would die for the whole nation to live. It was true. It's true because he didn't stay dead because all who follow him will have eternal life like he has. So he did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. We've got to kill this guy. 
Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. And this is the event that, that Jesus is going to get betrayed and arrested and crucified. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, What do you think? Is he coming to this festival at all? But the chief priest and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. The pivot has happened. They're not trying to discredit him anymore. They want to kill him. Jesus gets there, uh, but if you skip a little bit ahead to verse 9 of chapter 12, I want you to see what happens. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. They've got to kill Lazarus. They've got this problem that they're trying to kill Jesus and all of his people, and they just won't stay dead. They keep coming back and telling everybody about the eternal life and about the God who has an afterlife and the God who saves and the God who redeems. And everyone's starting to believe in Jesus, and the leaders and the people in authority say, this has to stop. We've got to kill him. Little do they know that that death is going to be what gives us life. Little did they know that you can't kill a man like Jesus, who's the Son of God, who's done no wrong, who has all authority in heaven and on earth, has been given to him in his death and in his resurrection, even authority over death. And so it changes things when you follow a Savior who gives eternal life. You don't grieve the same way. You're not afraid of people that can kill you. You're afraid of the one who protects your soul for eternity. And it starts to take away the power from the powerful, and it gives it to the followers of the one who submit to the king. And the whole world starts getting turned upside down because eternal life is Jesus's to give to his believers. And so as you're here today and you're listening to this, and imagining what it was like to wrestle with the doubt and the faith then. You wrestle with the doubt and the faith today. And so I invite you, if you're someone who has said, man, I've, I've never asked myself if I want the eternal life that Jesus offers to, to Lazarus and offers to me today. If you want to receive that eternal life, come forward this morning and be baptized as we stand and sing.